Welcome to Take This Poem Podcast, where we explore the rich, wild things that good poems can do in the everyday lives of ordinary folks. I'm your host, Mary Guidis. Whether you're a longtime poetry lover like I am, or just barely interested, I invite you to take this poem. I hope it amends the soil of your life. Hello, poetry friends. One of the things I like about poetry, especially poetry of the last hundred years or so, is that it can take almost anything as its subject, including very common things. A good poem can make us stop and look at something that has become so familiar to us that we hardly notice it anymore or give it much of a thought. A poem can be good without having to be epic in its style or subject matter. The two poems I'd like to share with you today are about a very familiar, seemingly mundane subject. They both have to do with getting one's hair cut or styled. For many of us, certainly for me, getting one's hair cut is mostly just one task amongst many in a long to-do list. For others, it's more of an event, something looked forward to or, in some cases, dreaded. Regardless, the subject of haircuts and the settings in which they occur is not one that I could very easily imagine uh, being given much attention to, say, by Homer or Milton or... Tennyson. Although granted, Alexander Pope, back in the 18th century, did write the mock heroic poem called The Rape of the Lock, but I digress. I'm going to introduce, then read the first poem, make a few comments upon it, then read it once more. I'll repeat that process with the second poem. This first poem was written by a California poet named David Swanger. He taught for many years at the University of California, Santa Cruz. I have not, admittedly, uh, read more than the handful of his poems that I ran across in an anthology called The Geography of Home, California's Poetry of Place. This poem caught my eye, though, as I read through the several hundred poems contained in the book, it caught my eye enough, in fact, that lacking a bookmark at the time, I committed that great sin, bemoaned by many a book lover, of dog-earing the page it was printed on. The title of the poem is Wayne's College of Beauty, Santa Cruz. By the way, the epigraph at the beginning of the piece is a line lifted from a William Butler Yeats poem called To a Young Beauty. Wayne's College of Beauty, Santa Cruz. I know what wages beauty gives, Yeats. We have dropped out of the other schools to enroll here where no one fails. Everything is fixed, fluffed, teased into its temporary best at cut-rate prices because we are all novices 
in the art of making beauty, learning that beauty is not so hard. Beauty is not so hard, we learn, because it is not chemicals or varieties of fashion. Our scissors and combs, our libraries of lotions, our bright mirrors assure the timorous or imperious elderly they have come at last to the right place. Wayne's is not the Heartbreak Hotel, and when they leave beautiful, it is because they are briefly unlonely. We have said, how are you? How would you like your hair? And we have touched them not cruelly and with more than our hands. When it is over, we swivel their chairs so they can see themselves carefully from several angles while we hover silent just above their doubts, a calculation that provides two faces in the mirror, ours smiling at both of us. There is something very laid back about the opening, at least, of this poem, perhaps in a Santa Cruz-like way. Santa Cruz is a beach town just south of San Francisco. Um, our family used to spend time there in the summers back in the 1960s when we lived in California. It's got a big pier and a boardwalk with a carnival on it, as well as a university. The very first line is designed, I think, to disarm the reader. The poet seems to be saying something like, don't worry, you don't have to have graduated at the top of your class. You don't have to be especially talented, exceptionally good-looking, the most successful, powerful, or influential kind of person to be here. I mean, look at us. We're all here because we flunked out of other schools or just couldn't figure out what we wanted to do. Part of the relaxed atmosphere of the poem comes too, I think, because it places both the speaker and the customers in a world of drastically reduced expectations. The stylists know they're here because they just couldn't cut it, no pun intended, in the college and business fast lane the classic American success track. They know, too, that their work is seen as mundane and makes no promises of giving them the return of either great amounts of status or money. They are also very aware that, in terms of the technical skills of the craft, they are learners, or novices, as Swanger puts it. They know that they don't know. They've been somewhat chastened by life, by experience, and consequently are probably a bit wiser, in a sense, than some of the sophomores, the wise fools who are still in the institutions and on that success track that these folks dropped out or flunked out of. The customers, too, almost all elderly, it appears, and probably mostly women, no doubt come into Wayne's College of Beauty with muted expectations. If they are on a tight budget, a fixed income, it's the place they can afford. They'll take what they can get. 
And being elderly, well, no matter what magic the folks at Wayne's may be able to do, they can't make someone look 50, 60, or 70 years younger than they are. My wife and I, as we've gotten older, joke about this all the time now. When we're going through the ritual of getting cleaned up and groomed before going to to church or a concert or out to dinner with friends, we'll often say to each other, seems like an awful lot of work for what amounts to a diminishing return. (laughs) When I was a much younger man, I think this poem would have depressed me. I'm pretty sure my reaction to it would have been something like, I don't want to be old, and I don't want to be stuck working in a low-end job as a stylist in a beauty college. But there is a turn in the second of the poem's three stanzas where we're told that the timorous or imperious elderly, and I would contend the stylists themselves, have, quote, come at last to the right place, unquote. The stylists, having like pinballs bounced around through happenstance and the results of various choices, and the elderly clients, having ridden out the long flow of time past, they've all come together here at Wayne's, of all places. There is a quiet but profound and yes, I would say, beautiful exchange that takes place here between stylists and customers, each both giving and receiving something that is incalculable in terms of money or any other transitory valuation. In other words, all the ones our culture tells us are the only ones that give us or those around us any value. It turns out that, ironically, Wayne's truly is a college of beauty. In fact, if Wayne's was a church, I'd probably attend. Here's the poem one more time. Wayne's College of Beauty, Santa Cruz. I know what wages beauty gives, Yates. We have dropped out of the other schools to enroll here where no one fails. Everything is fixed, fluffed, teased into its temporary best at cut-rate prices because we are all novices in the art of making beauty, learning that beauty is not so hard. Beauty is not so hard, we learn, because it is not chemicals or varieties of fashion. Our scissors and combs, our libraries of lotions, our bright mirrors, assure the timorous or imperious elderly they have come at last to the right place. Wayne's is not the Heartbreak Hotel, and when they leave beautiful, it is because they are briefly unlonely. We have said, how are you? How would you like your hair? And we have touched them not cruelly and with more than our hands. When it is over, we swivel their chairs so they can see themselves carefully from several angles while we hover silent 
just above their doubts, a calculation that provides two faces in the mirror, ours smiling at both of us. This next poem is by another contemporary poet named B.H. Fairchild. I think that his name and poetry have come up before on Mary's podcast. He happens to be one of my favorite poets, one whose work I've read widely in, and I return to it often. Swanger's poem, like I said, seems laid back in tone and, in a sense, almost playful. Neither of those adjectives would come to my mind when I read Fairchild's work. There is, I think, a a gravitas and a hard-as-flint, unwavering purposiveness that informs whatever subject he chooses to address. He always seems in dead earnest to me, something that may not be immediately apparent in a poem like the one we'll be looking at, but seems apparent enough, to me at least, after having read broadly in his work. He grew up working for his father in a machine shop in Kansas, a shop that mostly did work for people in the oil drilling business. When you've got roughnecks and drillers impatiently waiting for work they needed done yesterday, there's not much margin for laid back or playful. Unlike Santa Cruz, there were no surfers, no beach bums in the world Fairchild grew up in. Even here, in a seemingly wistful, meditative piece like the one I'm about to read, I sense an undercurrent of Fairchild knowing exactly what he's on the trail of, and his staying focused on that trail, doggedly, until either the scent goes cold or he catches up with whatever he's pursuing. This poem is called Hair. hair. At the 23rd Street barber shop, hair is falling across the arms of men, across white cotton cloths that drape their bodies like little nightgowns. How like well-behaved children they seem, silent, sleepy, sheets tucked neatly beneath their chins, legs too short to touch the floor. Each in his secret life sinks easily into the fat plastic cushion and feels the strange lightness of falling hair. The child's comfort of soft hands caressing his brow and temples. Each sighs inwardly to the constant whisper of scissors about his head, the razor humming small hymns along his neck. They've been here a hundred times, gazed upon mirrors within mirrors, clusters of slim-necked bottles labeled Wildroot and Vitalis, and below the shoeshine stand, rows of flat gold cans. They've heard the sudden intimacies, the warmth of men seduced by grooming, the veteran confessing an abandoned child in Rome, men discussing palm-sized pistols small enough to snuggle against your stomach. As children, they were told, after you're dead, it keeps on growing, 
and they've seen themselves lying in hair long as a young girl's. Two of them rise and walk slowly out. Their round heads blaze in the doorway. They creep into what is left of day, fingertips touching the short, stiff hairs across their necks. Like Swanger's Beauty College, Fairchild's Barbershop is a place where people surrender themselves, in varying degrees, to a kind of vulnerability they might generally avoid in most areas of their lives. Just the close physical proximity, the being subject to touch, would be for many men of my father's and grandfather's era, the men of this poem, a departure from the norm of their everyday experience. Where else, in a hard-working dog-eat-dog portion of their lives, can they experience the luxury of relaxing, letting down their guard enough to be physically pampered, attended to in ways they've been expected, and expected of themselves, to forego since leaving childhood? I'm old enough to remember barbershops like this one and men like these. In my case, hard-working farmers coming into the nearest small town every other Saturday for a trim. I can picture the rows of bottled hair tonic, the wild root and vitalis Fairchild mentions, the smell of talcum powder, the stacks of well-thumbed copies of Field and Stream on a table a baseball game murmuring on the radio. Even as a child, I could sense that this place was something of a sanctuary for these men, a kind of hallowed place, and that it was set apart, different in its own peculiar way from home, church, pub, or workplace. I'm pretty sure that the women in my childhood felt something like this about the beauty shops they went to, but because I never went inside them, but only passed by on the sidewalk, those places were an even greater mystery to me. The astringent smell of perming chemicals exhaled from the front door, and most curious of all, the sci-fi-looking beehive dryers, hair dryers, uh, with women sitting beneath them, legs crossed, paging through copies of good housekeeping or red book. Anyway, this specialness or otherness that Fairchild evokes about the barbershop makes it a place where their usual guardedness relaxed. The men feel safe enough at times to speak of things they might not otherwise speak of, or as Fairchild puts it, quote, the sudden intimacies the warmth of men seduced by grooming, unquote. The barber shop, in a sense, has become something like a confessional. At this point, Fairfield introduces the myth, and it is a myth, according to the BBC science site that I consulted before writing this, of hair continuing to grow on corpses. I remember hearing this bandied about when I was a kid, 
but it probably came from other kids trying to scare each other, not from adults. These men have so relaxed in this place and during this experience that they allow themselves to indulge in an imaginative reverie around this childhood myth, even to the point of seeing themselves lying in their coffin with long girl-like hair, which would be strange indeed for that time and those men. The last stanza tells me that this poem, in addition to being a meditation about unusual shared intimacies, is also a meditation on the mystery of our mortality. The men get up to leave the shop and, quote, creep into what is left of day, unquote. They know they've only got so much time left. And then they reach back and touch, almost as if to reassure themselves of their place here amongst the living, the, quote, short, stiff hairs across their necks, unquote. I'll read this one more time and... Like the men in the barber's chairs, let yourself sink easily into the fat plastic cushion, as Fairchild put it, of the poem. Hair. At the 23rd Street barber shop, hair is falling across the arms of men, across white cotton cloths that drape their bodies like little nightgowns. How like well-behaved children they seem, silent, sleepy, sheets tucked neatly beneath their chins, legs too short to touch the floor. Each in his secret life sinks easily into the fat plastic cushion and feels the strange lightness of falling hair, the child's comfort of soft hands caressing his brow and temples. Each sighs inwardly to the constant whisper of scissors about his head, the razor humming small hymns along his neck. They've been here a hundred times, gazed upon mirrors within mirrors, clusters of slim-necked bottles labeled Wildroot and Vitalis, and below the shoeshine stand, rows of flat gold cans. They've heard the sudden intimacies the warmth of men seduced by grooming, the veteran confessing an abandoned child in Rome, men discussing palm-sized pistols small enough to snuggle against your stomach. As children, they were told, after you're dead, it keeps on growing, and they've seen themselves lying in hair long as a young girl's. Two of them rise and walk slowly out, their round heads blaze in the doorway. They creep into what is left of day, fingertips touching the short, stiff hairs across their necks. Thanks for listening. Part of my vision for this podcast was to have it be interactive, I pictured a virtual bonfire poetry reading where friends, family, local poets, and you can come together 
to warm our hands on some poetry. If there's a poem that has done some action in your everyday life, surprised you, delighted you, or maybe just more quietly worked its way into your bones, you know I would love to hear about it. Email me at takethispoempodcast at gmail.com and let me know your story. Maybe you can join me in sharing it with others as well. 